I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. As Putin's war enters into the winter, what are the prospects of a peace deal? To discuss the war in Ukraine, I'm joined by the Russia expert and author of the new book, Putin's Wars, Mark Galliotti. What are the chances of a peace deal happening in Ukraine this year? This year, I would say pretty much none, unless there's some extraordinary black swan event which will probably involve Putin dying in his bed. I just don't, can't see it happening. There's no harm in opening conversations, by all means, but I just think at present, Russia and Ukraine are just so far apart, and Russia's willingness to give ground in terms of returning occupied territories has not been demonstrated in the slightest. I can't see where any conversations could go. Do you think there's a genuine desire from both the Russians and the Ukrainians to find a peace deal? No, not really. I think from the Ukrainians' point of view, they're riding high at the moment. They're very much victorious. I think that it's not that they're happy with the casualties and such like. If they felt they could get a full return of all the occupied territories, which after all will include Crimea, through negotiations, I'm sure they'd be delighted. But the point is, I don't believe they think that's possible. And likewise, look, the Russians, they are constantly saying, we are open to conversations, we're open to negotiations. This is largely disingenuous. They're hoping through that to be able to get some kind of a ceasefire, which will give them time to rebuild their shattered military. But again, this is it. At the moment, apparently there are proxy talks going on in Istanbul. But nonetheless, I see no signs that the Russians either are willing to make the kind of commitments which are necessary, which again, above all, is going to focus on Crimea. Crimea is going to be a really thorny issue. And so far, there's no real resolution for that. It does seem unlikely, doesn't it, that Crimea would ever be handed back to the Ukrainians without a major fight? Yes, I suppose one could see, perhaps under a different leader, some kind of a deal whereby perhaps there would be, in a few years' time, a new and genuine vote on Crimea's status. Because, after all, the principle of self-determination means that if the people of Crimea actually don't want to be part of Ukraine, they should have the right to express that. But the point is, the vote that was had in 2014 was clearly a totally illegitimate one under the shadow of the Russian guns. But at present... Yeah, it's, there's, that is the circle that can't be squared or vice versa. That is an issue that pretty much every Russian, after all, regardless of whether or not they think Putin is wonderful or appalling, pretty much every Russian thinks that Crimea is rightfully Russian. And by all accounts, so too do many, most, it's hard to tell, 
of Crimeans. Yes, this is the tricky one. And given that the Russians have given the Ukrainians absolutely no reason to believe their good faith, it's hard to see how some kind of long-term resolution through diplomatic means could be arranged. So yes, it will probably end up, alas, being fought out on the streets. So Elon Musk came under criticism for proposing a series of ideas for a long-term peace plan. Do you think that there is any sort of, can you see on the horizon a sort of shape of what that peace plan might look like that would work, as I say, in the long term? Or will this become another sort of frozen conflict like we had after 2014? I certainly hope not. I wouldn't necessarily put much faith in Elon Musk's notions of what peace should look like any more than anyone should put any faith in my notions of the next trends in modern technology. But I think that the crucial issue is this. On the one hand, look, immediately Ukrainian security absolutely depends on winning this war. In the long term, though, it doesn't matter what weapons you give them, it doesn't matter what alliances they're allowed into, Ukraine's long-term security depends on a Russia which is not an enemy. And ideally, obviously, that means a Russia which is a free, happy, liberal democracy. But even without that, one that has, as it were, accepted Ukraine's sovereignty, its right to exist as a truly independent nation. Now, that's going to be something that is, is not something that can be resolved in months or even a few years. It's like a long-term process. But I think it really does emphasize this point that there have to be conversations in due course. And those conversations are about stopping the, sh the, the shooting now, resolving the situation and getting Russians out of occupied territories, but also much longer-term ones about the resolution of this relationship, because Ukraine and Russia are connected in so many ways, not least in terms of not just ethnicity, but families that are divided across the border and so forth. And a, an angry, hostile, vengeful Russia, even if its military has been shattered, can cause problems for Ukraine for the foreseeable future, and obviously that needs to be resolved. And obviously, it was not only for the people in Ukraine and, let's be honest, Russia, but all around the world, this is, the war is causing terrible problems, economic problems, humanitarian crisis, the wheat problems, the food, the grain problems for people in Africa and other places, other poor countries, and obviously many people dying on the battlefield. So we all want a peace as soon as possible. Is it the moral responsibility of the West to put pressure onto Ukraine to start thinking about a peace deal the Americans have apparently been asking or putting pressure on to Kiev to, to do this. Do you think it's our responsibility to start taking peace more seriously or taking a peace deal more seriously for the Ukrainians? Yes, this is operating on two levels. If one looks at what the Ukrainians were being pressurised to do by the Americans, and it's interesting, I mean, I'm currently temporarily in D.C., and it has to be said that along with, obviously, a fundamental support for the Ukrainians, there is also, in official circles, I'm getting a certain degree of exasperation that basically the Ukrainians, they feel, aren't listening to them. And particularly that was about the optics. It was about the fact that the Ukrainians were just simply ruling out any kind of negotiations, the fact that President Zelensky had actually passed a decree saying that they would not talk to the Russians so long as Putin was in power. Now, that's perhaps understandable on an emotional level. But what that was allowing the Russians to do was to basically make the running. Because the Russians were saying, we're happy to talk without preconditions. It's the Ukrainians that are the problem. And we should remember that there is also a much larger audience, which is, in a way, the rest of the world. The global south is one of these problematic terms, but we haven't really got a better one at the moment. It is clear that however much we in the West regard ourselves as being on the side of right and so forth, there are large swaths of the world that are either actually faintly sympathetic to the Russians or more to the point 
they see this as a European civil war that really ought not to impinge on their lives. And in a way, we have failed, frankly, to really make our point and make our case there. So the first of all is just the optics. Just at least, they're trying to get the Ukrainians at least not to be looking as if they were ruling out talks. But secondly, this point about the sort of the, the moral imperative. Look, I'm... I hesitate to call myself an essentially immoral person. But look, I don't regard myself as being in a position to be able to pontificate about the, the moral imperative. I would talk about the practical imperative. That actually, look, we in the West also have a real incentive to not just end this war right now, or as, as soon as possible, but also to ensure some kind of long-lasting settlement. And I think in this context, the problem is that this has become dominated by a totally false dichotomy. It's either, well, you support the Ukrainians, or you want talks now, which means concessions to the Russians. I don't believe that a dichotomy to exist. We can talk and fight at the same time. Certainly the, the Ukrainians can. So I think the issue is, yes, on the one hand, yes, the West should be thinking about the end game. And the reason why we're not is in some ways because we're afraid of what that would involve. We have this mantra that the war will end when the Ukrainians say it will end. There's some truth in that, but also it's disingenuous nonsense. In the sense, of course, we have our own interests. But the point is, it's a useful mantra because it means that we don't have to think about the end game. Because the trouble is, if you look at the Western alliance, there is such a huge variation. If you look at countries like Poland and the Baltic states, they adopt a very maximalist position. They basically want, it's not say it's not just about Ukraine, it's about basically humbling and taming Russia. If you look at other countries, particularly in, in the south of Europe and indeed France as well, maybe even Germany, it's actually just simply about resolving this conflict as quickly and as painlessly as possible. No one wants to have these discussions about the end game. And therefore, we're ducking that particular issue, which I think is a real problem. On the issue of nuclear weapons, and as you say, the longer the war goes on, perhaps the more chance there is of nuclear weapons being deployed. Do you think that is a serious challenge that we should be considering in the West? And it's something that we should be thinking about in terms of pushing for that peace deal? We need to be thinking about it. I still feel that, although dangerous it is to be optimistic about this war, I still think that we are nowhere near the situation in which that is an even conceivable possibility. I think the point is that Putin knows that when he hints at some kind of nuclear response, we pay attention. And he's also realized that I think so long as there is, in many ways, effectively infinite supply of weapons and money flowing into Ukraine, it's almost impossible to actually win any kind of victory, even a very partial victory on the battlefield. He can only win this war in any way if he can undermine and divide the West and limit the support it's willing to give Ukraine. So I think when he makes these nuclear threats, he's really more than anything else hoping to scare certain portions of Western public opinion and the Western commentariat into thinking, oh my God, this situation could escalate in such dramatic and dangerous ways that if we are to avoid thermonuclear Armageddon, we have to make some kind of a deal with Putin regardless of the cost. I think this is essentially propaganda and information operation rather than a real threat. We can't totally rule it out. We have to be aware of the possibility. Fortunately, given the nature of Russia's we meant to call them non-strategic rather than tactical nuclear weapons for arcane reasons which are beyond me. But anyway, given the nature of these, we will have a certain amount of warning, days probably, before any could be used. 
and I'm sure we are very carefully watching the 12 arsenals in which Russia's non-strategic nuclear warheads are being kept. So yes, we need to watch, we need to think about it, but as I said, I don't think we're at the point where we need seriously to worry about it. So we're coming into the winter. How is that going to impact the war in Ukraine? The winter is likely to lead to a certain slowing down of offensive operations. We shouldn't just treat the winter as being one unvariated block. Ukraine's winters more or less go through three, three cycles, shall we say. Autumn, about now, is when rains come, skies close, and the soil largely gets turned to, to a very sticky mud, which makes it much harder to be able to operate. But then, assuming it's a cold winter which on one level Ukraine must be hoping not, given the degree to which Russia has been hammering its infrastructure, its electrical infrastructure, and you know, it could, could well be a very hard winter for them. But nonetheless, if it is a cold winter, then the mud freezes. And once again, offensive operations become possible until the thaw comes, and we have everyone getting glued down where they are. There are going to be variations. Clearly, the Russians are hoping to use winter as a chance to consolidate their forces on their new defensive line since they've withdrawn from Kherson. As they prepare and train up the bulk of the mobilised reservists, probably about 150,000 or so people, into scratch units, which can then be deployed come spring. The Ukrainians will be wanting to do what they can to prevent the Russians from doing that. So at the very least, we're going to see constant harassing fire, long-range artillery and the like, which again is going to put quite a demand on the supply lines, uh, providing them with the necessary ammunition for that. And then we'll also perhaps see some local offensives. But as I said, I think that probably Ukraine's forces are not just not really going to be able to do very much in, in winter because of conditions, but also they've been fighting at quite a hard tempo. It's very hard to be sure, but certainly we're getting some indications that they've reached a stage where they too need to stop and draw breath and re-equip and rearm. How would you assess both sides' morale at the moment? Clearly, Ukrainian morale, worlds apart from the Russian, not only are they fighting for their homeland, but as far as they're concerned, rightly, they're winning. They've had these sort of extraordinary victory in the north, in the Kharkiv offensive, and now they've taken back Kherson without having to go into the kind of nasty, gritty, street-by-street -street fighting that really would, would have been a very bloody experience. They're riding high, but again, they've been taking some heavy casualties too. The estimate is that basically between dead and wounded, both sides have basically suffered about 100,000 casualties, which is no small amount. And I think, again, there, there are certain pressures. We can sometimes fall prey to an easy assumption that because the Ukrainians are, in our view, the good guys, and because there's much more enthusiasm and support for them, that you know, everyone is happy. The answer is not. But generally speaking, the Ukrainians are in a very positive frame of mind. Or the Russians, clearly not. However, again, I think we need to treat that with some caution. Yes, the Russians are clearly unhappy. It's not just that they're losing the war, a war that for most soldiers, they don't really understand why they're fighting for it, fighting it. But at the same time, many of them, they're, they're cold, they're hungry, their supply processes are really not really working well. But except when we see a kind of a generalized collapse in morale, usually because people are outflanked and so forth. On the whole, the main thing is most Russians are still, Russian soldiers in the field are still willing to fight, either because of unit morale or just simply because they fear the consequences otherwise. But in, in effect, that doesn't really matter. So we're not seeing the kind of massive collapse of morale yet, at least. But I do think that Russian morale is brittle. 
And if the Ukrainians manage to make some kind of unexpected breakthrough, we could see that becoming really quite a major problem. I mean, this was one of the concerns about the withdrawal from Kherson, which seems to have actually been done really very effectively. If it had actually turned into a rout, panic can be contagious, and we could have seen a whole segment of the Russian front line basically falling back. And the Russians have a serious problem with morale, even if at present they're basically managing to hold their line. Is there any way for the Russians to turn this around, to turn the war around for them? Because, I don't know, as you say, the amount of weapons from the West that they're up against, it might make it impossible. It's certainly very hard to see any kind of real likelihood, because even with the additional new troops, and let's be honest, 150,000 troops, even if they're bad troops, but these mobilised reservists, they're being equipped with old-fashioned weapons and so forth, but it's still 150,000 fresh new troops. But nonetheless, what we're actually seeing is that at the very moment when Ukraine is acquiring a 21st century army, thanks to the training and supplies that we're providing, Russia is increasingly fielding a late Soviet army, a, 19th, uh, sorry, a 20th century army with kit from the 1960s and 1970s. In those circumstances, I cannot see how Russia can really make anything other than the most minor local gains on the battlefield. And this is what it comes down to. This is why Putin's strategy is now to try and drag the war out. If he can outlast the West's will to continue to support Ukraine, then he can hope that he can impose some kind of a deal on Ukraine that probably would see the territories currently under Russian control, perhaps continuing to be under Russian control. I think that's his best possible scenario, and I don't think it's likely to happen. But the point is, that at present, that's the best he's got, so he'll cling to that particular hope. So let's talk about your book. I've got it here, Putin's Wars. And you've also written other books about Putin. This is someone that you've thought about a lot, I can imagine. When he became president 20 years ago, was this war in Ukraine always going to happen? Was it inevitable? No, I think this is one of the, one of the fears. Your human beings are great pattern recognition animals, and we look at dots and we immediately draw lines between them. Now, look, when Putin came to power, look, of course, he was imbued with the kind of values and mindset of his generation, that kind of last true homo sovieticus generation. And he didn't really think that countries like Ukraine had genuine sovereignty. You know, as far as he was concerned, their rightful place was in Russia's sphere of influence. And that was always evident. It did not necessarily have to lead to war. The things that, you know, the, the reasons that led to war are in part about the changes in Putin himself. No one stays in power for 22 years, especially as essentially the autocrat, without being changed, warped, distorted by the process, and in many ways almost becoming a caricature of himself. Secondly, this is the aging process. I think that he decided that he needed some kind of great triumph to consolidate his legacy and possibly allow him safely to leave office. But also just the developments in geopolitics in that time. It is clear that without in any way wanting to support Putin's paranoid narrative about evil, nefarious NATO plots to encroach on and eventually humble Russia, nonetheless, there were some serious blunders in the messaging and the presentation of how NATO envisaged its relationship with Ukraine and also how the European Union envisaged that. We can't get away from the fact that what was the real spark for all of this. It was actually Ukraine's 2013 treaty that it was going to sign with the European Union that at first Moscow didn't have a problem with until in summer 2013 someone pouring through the details, it was after all a very fat legal document, realised that it would actually lock 
Ukraine away from a lot of economic cooperation with Russia. And the belief was this is actually some kind of EU plot to, in effect, steal Ukraine. Now, I don't believe it was a plot like that for a moment. I think it was just this is what happens when you have a treaty that is drawn up by trade lawyers who aren't really fully aware of the geopolitical implications and no one else really thought about it. And at that point, there was that sense of, okay, Ukraine is now the new battleground. So there's all kinds of reasons, and frankly, even in the very, very last week of the, uh, before the invasion, it looks that Putin, although he probably had decided to act, but he was still true to form, because it's not, this is not a daring man, was havering. He was not sure, you know, should he invade at all? And if so, the all-out invasion, or just simply to take the, essentially the areas he's fighting in now, the south and east of the country. Really, up to that point, it might have conceivably been possible for the dice to have fallen a different way. So we shouldn't assume things are inevitable. But on the other hand, this is absolutely, you might say, Putin's war in the sense of it's a product of his assumptions and prejudices. And although he is a more extreme form of himself, shall we say, now, today's Putin, one can see in the year 2000 vintage Putin. Can you talk a little bit about Putin's wars, why they were successful, why he got away with them, and why in Ukraine in 2022, it was a different story. Yeah, so Putin is, in many ways, a very old-fashioned nationalist. He's really a 19th-century geopolitician. I think a Bismarck or a Napoleon would have totally understood him. And I say 19th rather than, say, 18th, because it's not just that might makes right and that strong countries impose their will on weaker ones. It's also this almost colonial mindset of the time, that there are, shall we say, proper countries... And then there's the rest, whose sovereignty is really destined to be just simply determined by other countries. So he very much sees, you know, he sees the West as, generally speaking, kind of proper countries. Countries like Ukraine, they're, they're secondary ones. And his notion of Russia as a great power was right from the beginning inextricably linked with warfighting capability. Russia has to be a military great power. He's determined to believe that Russia has to be a great power, even though it's no longer anything like the sort of powerful of the Soviet Union. And his view was that, that could be asserted through military power. And if you have military power, you need to demonstrate it. But the interesting thing is, essentially, right up to this war, Putin, by luck or by good judgment, essentially picked easily winnable wars. The Second Chechen War actually turned out to be much more hard fought than anticipated, but still, ultimately, there was no real question that Chechnya would be actually be able to stand up against the whole might of a mobilized Russia. Likewise, in his invasion of Georgia, tiny Georgia, it was a five-day war, despite the fact that there were many blunders by the Russians, but again, the outcome was never in doubt. Annexation of Crimea in 2014, again, a very sort of surgical operation at a time when basically the Ukrainian state had virtually collapsed. And then his military deployment into Syria, kept at essentially a pretty small footprint, largely just air forces, bombing insurgents who didn't have air defenses from a nice... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com.
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Safe height. Again, this is it. The interesting thing is that despite all the macho posturing, Putin ultimately was always a very cautious warmonger. He wanted the trappings of being a warlord without the risks. And then this seems to be the paradox with this war. And I will confess, when it actually happened, there was a part of me thinking, basically, did I get Putin wrong? Has or has he changed? And I think, though, what then emerged became clear that actually, for Putin, this was not going to be a big deal. This was not going to be a long war. It was going to be a two-week operation. He convinced himself that Ukraine was not a real state. The Ukrainian people would basically welcome the Russian liberators or at the very least, just accept a fait accompli. A supine, hypocritical West would wring its hands and bring out some minor sanctions, but essentially do very little and do that too late. In that circumstance, from his point of view, this was a relative no-brainer. It was going to be an easy win and a great triumph. And then, because in a way, Belarus has already been brought into the Russian fold, he would have united the three great Russian, Slavic, heartland nations, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, and that's it. He's now Vladimir the Great, regatherer of the Russian lands or whatever. So each time, this has actually been a man who tries to be quite cautious, tries to go for easy wins, but it's a man who doesn't really understand modern warfare. It doesn't, he has almost no military experience. He just did a sort of cursory reserve officer training when he was at university back in the 1970s. And he had no idea what he was biting off when he went into Ukraine. Do you think that's because he's surrounded by yes men and people telling him what he wants to hear? Or is, he, is, is it something else? Yeah, I think that's a very powerful element of it. We've known for years that his circle has been contracting that those people who once upon a time had slightly different perspectives and were willing to challenge him have been eased out, people like his former finance minister, Alexei Kudrin. And instead, exactly, he's now surrounded by people who... His closest circle are just very much people like him. They're like the same age, pretty much. Putin is 70. And if you look at the people closest to him, they're pretty much all between the ages of 68 and 74. They're of the same generation. Most of them are ex-KGB. They very much have the same kind of mindset. For the people around him in the sort of the outer layer of technocrats and professionals, yes, they've learned that you do not try and counter the boss's perceptions. And I think this is one of the clear tragedies. If one looks at, say, the defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, who actually, by all accounts, was not a fan of going in, invading Ukraine, just as he wasn't particularly keen on taking Crimea back in 2014. But I would suggest that he, in this context, his big sin was precisely that he had his misgivings, but he would not 
bring himself to actually question and say, this is a bad idea for these reasons. And the real professionals, they weren't even involved in the thinking. The, the generals, the planners in the general staff and so forth, none of those were involved in the sort of the preparations for this. So yes, I think this is a product of years of increasing isolation, magnified by COVID in his period of isolation, where it seems to be that one of the key figures who actually had personal access to him was an old friend of him, his, a banker, Yuri Kovalchuk, who likewise shares these notions that somehow Ukraine is ungrateful and is not really a, a country. And who on earth was going to tell the boss, Vladimir Vladimirovich, you're wrong? No one. Do you think the West misunderstands Putin? And do you think that people, by calling him or labelling him simply mad, are sort of you know, taking the wrong angle. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we say the West, there's a whole spectrum of expertise and opinion, so I certainly wouldn't want to say, yes, everyone is wrong. But nonetheless, there is, there is a problem, and I think particularly this comes from, shall we say, the political class that is looking for a nice soundbite. Like, we, we, we've just had uh, Prime Minister Sunak call Russia a rogue state, and I get where he's coming from, but I just, I worry about some of these labels. As regards Putin being mad... We know that Putin is a rational actor. He's demonstrated that. It may take him time to change his views, but, for example, he had his first desperate attempt to try and take Kiev. When it became clear that that was failed, he didn't escalate. He pulled back. He reconfigured his attack to look at the Donbass and and the southeast. Kherson, he clearly did not want to surrender Kherson. For weeks, his generals have been pestering him to allow him to do that. Eventually, he, he agrees. Generally speaking, the issue is this, that even rational actors can do deeply irrational things and believe deeply rational things, depending on what information they have, what perspectives, how they see the world. Putin clearly has a deeply skewed understanding of the world. He sees it in very conspiratorial, very aggressive, dog-eat-dog terms. He does believe that the West is embarked in some long-term conspiratorial campaign against him, and he does believe some deeply muddle-headed things about Ukraine. But, But within those contexts, I think he has demonstrated that he is rational. He's not the kind of figure, for example, and this goes back to, for example, to your earlier point about nuclear weapons, He's not about to end the world in a thermonuclear pyre just because he's not getting his own way. He doesn't have any kind of grand overarching ideology that motivates him. Essentially, he is a self-interested despot who has bitten off something that he cannot possibly chew and is trying desperately to respond to that. He will be driven by, above all, his regime and his own personal survival. But he does have a sense of Russian history. He wrote that long essay... I think last year, about Russia's place in the world and Russia's history versus the history of Ukraine as a country. It's not just about him, that's what I'm trying to say. It's not Mm -hmm. just about his self-interest in that sense. He does have this very strong, almost ideological, maybe you disagree with that word, view of Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, generally speaking, he believes that Russia is entitled to be a great power. It's not like it is a great power because of the size of its economy or its nuclear arsenal or whatever, but it has historical right. And it is a right that has been won by, and again, this is a pervasive and problematic myth in Russia, that essentially Russia has time and again saved civilization, sometimes from itself. We are the ones who stopped the Mongols from rolling into Western Europe. Well, they didn't. But anyway, they like to believe that. All the way through to we're the ones who beat Napoleon. We're the ones who beat Hitler. Time and again, it's that sense of we are ultimately the ones who do the heavy lifting to save everyone else. 
And yes, so he believes that, and he believes that Russia is a great power, therefore, by right, and that great powers have spheres of influence. And specifically on, on Ukraine, yeah, absolutely, he has this notion that Ukraine is really not separate from Russia. And look, the issue of Ukraine's historic relationship with Russia is an incredibly complex one. It is no more true to say that Ukraine has always been independent than it is to say Ukraine has always been part of Russia. It's one that, that lends itself to so much nuance, one could almost say, actually, that Russia is part of Ukraine, if one was actually, because the real root of all of the lands of the Rus was Kiev the Golden. So in that context, yes, he believes certain things. He has absolutely some strange assumptions. And he has also used history very instrumentally as a means of his power to try and mobilize the Russian people and rationalize and justify his own rule. But again, look, everyone does. Everyone has some kind of frame of reference through which they understand their country and their country's relationship with the rest of the world. His is particularly problematic. And yes, it acts as a certain constraint. But on the other hand, look, I also think that we have to acknowledge the degree to which Putin is a cynical opportunist, just like everyone else within his system, unfortunately. And he may well believe that Russia ought to have control over Ukraine. But let's be honest, he has already, in effect, acknowledged that he's not going to control most of Ukraine. And even if one looks at the kind of potential peace deals that get floated by the Russians, they all carry with it the implication that at least most of what is now Ukraine will be allowed to be a sovereign nation and can actually even build some kind of a relationship with the EU and NATO. Now, again, this is a man who, despite what he believes and despite how he is portrayed, he is first and foremost, in his own mind, a survivor. Now, Putin, one of the things he talks about is the culture wars. He talks about the West cancel culture. He talks about freedom of speech. He paints Russia as this traditional Christian country versus the decadent, kind of woke West. Is that an accurate portrayal? It, it is not an accurate portrayal in, in some ways. Again, as ever, it's all about nuance, unfortunately. Look, in, in part, Putin does this purely for performative propaganda reasons. This is the thing about the fact that there is no ideological keel to the Russian state. Essentially, Putin can sell Russia to every constituency in different terms. He can turn to the populist, traditionalist wing of Western politics and say, you are worried about all this wokeness around you. Russia stands as a bulwark against that. And it fits, again, this notion of Russia as the final guardian of civilization. Because they're almost framing it as something like, no, of course we're European, but we're the true Europeans. It's Europe that has lost its way and that we will save it. But at the same time, let's not forget that actually Russia is also selling itself to the global south as being involved in an anti-colonial war. That Ukraine is merely the cat's paw of a hegemonic United States that is trying to dominate the world. And it sells itself to sort of the sentimental left in the West as somehow the kind of inheritor of the Soviet Union and an opponent to corporate capitalism and such, even though actually Putin's Russia is a neoliberal employer's dream. So again, in a lot of this is, this is just simply the way that it pivots its propaganda to whoever it thinks can be useful. But yes, there is also this growing traditionalism. Again, I think as Putin realized that he is losing his legitimating narratives, reasons why Russians would want to support him. Once upon a time, it was straightforward. Look, you stay out of politics and your life will get better and there'll be more goods in the shops and so forth. And for a while, Putin absolutely delivered that. 
Then it became, because you know, that was no longer possible, it became much more of a sort of, we're a beleaguered fortress and the West hates us and that's why we're, we're suffering, but that's why we all have to bind together. That never really got much traction. So now he's trying the blood and soil, loamy nationalism, you know, bring the Russian Orthodox Church closer, talk about traditional values, just to try and give some kind of sort of cohering narrative. Again, though, I, there's very little evidence that this particularly resonates with most Russians. Actually, Russia is in the main a pretty modern cosmopolitan society. Perhaps, yes, it's certainly it's more retrograde in some attitudes, particularly out of the main cities, towards non-traditional sexual orientation and the like. But to be honest, it's my sense is Russia is probably not that far away from, say, where Britain was in the 1980s. It's not particularly religious. I think people have this idea of it being a very religious country, but I'm not quite sure that that's an accurate portrayal. And it's a very multicultural nation. If you look at Moscow, there's a lot of Muslims living there all over the constituent parts of Russia. It's a very, very multicultural society. Perhaps it's not as mixed as in Britain or in other places, but it's still this idea of Russia being this one kind of white mm -hmm. nationalist state perhaps isn't quite accurate. Absolutely not. And this is it. actually, it has been really one of the success stories of Russia, how it has been able to bring together different faiths and different ethnicities. It's interesting, in, for example, Kazan, that is the capital of Tatarstan, which is a heavily Muslim region, there is the, the central fortress, the Kremlin. And you go into there, and there is a massive and, and glorious mosque next to a massive and glorious Russian Orthodox cathedral. And in many ways that, I think, symbolises it. It's actually that sense of that it can be both. And this is one of the potential pitfalls for Putin. As he draws closer to the Russian Orthodox Church, as he sees this as the kind of the true heart of what is Russia, what will this mean to the substantial numbers of, of not just Muslim, but other, but especially Muslims, sort of non-ethnically Russian, non-Russian Orthodox and people, particularly because if one looks at birth rates, Slavic birth rates, like European birth rates, are on the whole in decline. But on the other hand, particularly within the Muslim North Caucasus, still have very large families, very high levels of birth rate. So if we look, for example, at the composition of the kind of young men who become the conscripts of the Russian military, this is disproportionately becoming a North Caucasian and therefore Muslim force. And in the, again, in the long term, is it really sensible to build your new national identity around a religion which is not the religion of large numbers of your soldiers? One could suggest not. I think to a degree this is Putin clutching at straws after all. This demographics issue is also something that every Western country is having to grapple with, or most Western countries are. And But for Russia in particular, it's, this seems like a very serious issue for them. As you say, their birth rates are declining. But now they've got, as you say, 100,000 casualties potentially in the war in Ukraine. That's only going to rise if the war continues. So does Russia really face an acute issue here where they're just, they just don't have enough young men to sustain themselves in the long term? I think we shouldn't overplay it. This is still a country of more than 140 million people. And therefore, particularly, there is still scope. There is all kinds of latent power. The demographic concern is really more of a long-term one in terms of depopulation of certain areas as everyone wants to go to the cities and also the degree to which Russia therefore has been having to rely on, and again it sounds a very familiar story, guest workers from Central Asia. 
to do a lot of the low-paying, hard grunt work that the economy re requires, which has going to been a long kind of term concern. In the short term, if it's just about warm bodies, and if Putin is not worried about the political costs, he can still find more people to throw in. Not least because what they haven't yet used really are conscripts. But with the annexation decrees that sort of basically de decided that these occupied territories were now actually part of Russia, by law, Putin could send conscripts into the war zone. He's avoided doing so because I think he's aware of the massive political uproar that taking these 18 and 19-year-olds and sending them in to die in Ukraine would have on their families back home. But nonetheless, I think that means that actually cannon fodder Putin does not lack for. What he lacks, after all, are experienced and trained soldiers and modern weapons with which to equip them. Has this partial mobilisation had any impact? And obviously it has had an impact. What's the impact been on the Russian population as a whole in terms of their views of Putin and the war? And how can we assess that impact? How do we know really how ordinary Russians feel about this stuff? Obviously a certain number of Russians just simply got the hell out. It's interesting that basically for every young man who was mobilised, two had actually fled the country. And that's a substantial issue, and it's quite a brain drain, because obviously you're more likely to flee the country if you have the sort of transferable skill that you think you can use elsewhere. So we see in sectors like IT, but also actually a lot of it is skilled industrial workers, because we know, again, a lot of the factories which are vital to the war effort are having trouble now recruiting workers to basically fill these gaps. And you had local governors petitioning Moscow, saying, look, we need to have exemptions because you want us to keep the industries running. So we, we can see that there's disquiet within the country, at both at an official as well as a sort of public level. In many ways, really, the mobilisation broke, again, a sort of a, an, a, an implicit social contract between Putin and his people, which is more or less, look, you let me have my war, and for most of you, I will guarantee that it won't affect your lives in any meaningful way. Yeah, sure, maybe there's going to be... You can't go to McDonald's anymore, but nonetheless, there's other places you can get burgers still. This actually brought the war into every single family, and that clearly has had an impact. Because even if one looks at opinion polls, and look, obviously there are issues, serious issues with opinion surveying in Russia these days, but there are still companies which do a pretty professional job. And even if you look at those, it's quite clear that since this point, we've seen Putin's approval ratings going down, still from artificially high levels. Because frankly, if someone rings you up at home and says, I'm just doing an opinion survey, what do you think of Putin? In the current increasingly totalitarian environment, you're, you're less likely to say, I think it's, he's a bloody disgrace. But nonetheless, one can see that his approval ratings are going down. But more importantly, one can also see that actually a majority of Russians say that they would favour negotiations to bring an end to this war. And, and that's, that's definitely something that we've seen much more clearly since mobilisation. Because up to that point, a lot of people just weren't thinking about the war. Now they have to. One final question. You were banned from Russia... Are you going to miss going to Russia? Oh, God, yes, absolutely. Look, on one level, look, I'll miss it for professional reasons. Because although there's a certain number of contacts who are still happy to talk to me, usually by more, the more encrypted types of communications, it's not the same as actually being able to meet people face-to-face, -face, ideally with alcohol somehow brought into the equation, and have those kind of conversations. P professionally, obviously, I'll miss it. But also, look, I love Russia. I'll freely say this. I enjoy being there. I enjoy I find the country fascinating. 
And in many ways, some people say, how can you say that in the current environment? Precisely because I think Putin is an enemy to Russia. And I think that actually the most patriotic thing Russians can do is oppose him and his regime. For all these reasons, given that I honestly think that there's no chance of my being able to get back to Russia while Putin is still alive and in power, I'm just simply dug in and looking forward to outliving him. That's what I was going to ask. Do you think you'll ever be able to go back? Yes, I do. Look, I very much see Putin as a, a temporary phenomenon. Again, with the kind of the Olympian view of the historian who can look at it in very long term. I think, you know, when the historians do eventually have the chance to write the long durée studies of you know, late 20th, early 21st century Russia, Putin is, as I said, very much the last gasp of Homo Sovieticus. If I look to the people who are in the political generation below him, and I'm not talking about young hipsters, I'm talking about, you know, fat, settled, rich, 50-something and early 60-something-year-old members of the elite, the ones who are already, frankly, looking at their watches saying, when is our time in the sun? My experience of them is, look, these are, again, these are opportunists. These are kleptocrats. These are people who I wouldn't say are nice people, and they're not Democrats. But on the other hand, they don't have this emotional, visceral sense of Western hostility and the need for great power status at any cost. What they really want are the good old early Putin days when they could steal at home, bank and spend abroad. Because what's the point in embezzling millions if you can't then, you know, moor your yacht off the south of France and buy your swanky penthouse in London and send your kids to an American? This is not, frankly, Sochi and Shanghai are not quite the same sort of social circuit that, that you're looking for. So I think that when Putin does go and there is a political transfer of power, which may not be immediate, it might be that at first there's some kind of engineered succession, which is basically another one of Putin's generation. But ultimately, I think we, know, we are going to see this kleptocratic generation wanting to improve their relations with the West quite quickly and dramatically, and maybe also beginning to bring in a degree of rule of law. Because the point is, look, you can have rule of law without democracy. But you can't have democracy without rule of law. This was Russia's mistake in the 1990s. And this generation who basically has stolen everything that isn't nailed down will want rule of law to basically formalize that, which may be for the political generation that follows will allow them to be a bit democratic. But in the short term, though, as I said, I think when Putin goes, we will probably see quite quickly a drive to improve relations with the West which we will grab with both hands, because we're finding with kleptocrats. We do it all the time. And then maybe, just maybe, people like me will be allowed back. Thank you so much, Mark. I a appreciate pleasure. it. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.